You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Will you turn now for one last time to the Gospel of John, chapter 21? I guess I shouldn't say one last time, because it's not like we're cutting the book out of our Bible after this, but at least as part of this series, John chapter 21. And let us bow together before we begin. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for your word and for the truth it contains concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and all he has done for his people. And we thank you for what you have taught us, and we pray that you would teach us now today in your word, increase our confidence in the truth of Scripture, and help us to see the glory of Christ here revealed. Thank you for your love for us, and thank you for this time, and we pray your blessing upon it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are here at the last two verses of John's Gospel. Uh, This is it. The end has come. Some of you thought the end would come before the end would actually come, and that was the end of John's Gospel, probably about... Chapter 5 or 6, some of you started to think that maybe you were going to learn about the coming or the return of the Lord firsthand before you would ever learn about the resurrection of the Lord from the Apostle John. But we are here and we have reached the end of John's Gospel now. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, and I am asking for a show of hands, not just to answer this in your mind, but how many of you have started coming to Kootenai Community Church since we started the Gospel of John? Can you raise your hands? Was there anybody here before we started John? A few, okay, good. <laughs> um, that means that you have started coming at some point since August 2nd, 2009. That was when we started. Now, we're only two weeks shy of having seven full years in this gospel. And if you're keeping track or counting, which you are probably not, but I am, this is sermon number 306 in John's gospel. And I only point that out, and not to brag or because I think that it's some achievement, um, but Some of you would think that that is probably going really slow. Uh, I am certainly aware, and I think that you are probably certainly aware as well, that there are times in this gospel when we could have stopped and gone a little bit slower and stopped and meditated upon things because you, have, like me, have probably glimpsed promises or mysteries or warnings of judgment or uh, certain things in this gospel where you, you just you think to yourself, I've only glimpsed something that we could probably ponder indefinitely or uh, in, in embark upon a journey into this doctrine. And so there are times when he could have gone much slower. And I think that that is a testament to the, the depth of Scripture and the richness of Scripture, that it never yields up all of its gems. Because the truth is that whether I were to preach 300 sermons on John or 3,000 sermons on John, and whether you would listen to 300 or 3,000 sermons on John, we would always leave this book feeling as if we are left something here that was un- unmined. We left something in these pages that we could have gotten more out of it. And I think that that is certainly true. Even if we did 3,000 studies in John, we would still leave it thinking, wow, that, what a rich book that is. So here we come to the last two verses, and this is John's signature. This is John's way of signing off his gospel. And we're going to take this opportunity of these last two verses to, to give you something of a summary of John and to kind of review some of the themes and kind of look at some of the things that we have observed in this book and also to see how it is that John signs out. And we're going to notice him give three things here about this book. Tell us three things about it. First, that his testimony is trustworthy. It's true. It's trustworthy. Second, that it is um, selective. He doesn't record everything that could be said. 
And third, that it is sufficient. It is trustworthy, selective, and sufficient. So let's look first of all at his trustworthiness. Let's read together verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. First thing John says about his testimony and what he has written is that these things are true. Verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things. Now, who is this disciple? Uh, As with the rest of the gospel, John leaves himself unnamed. He is in the pages of this book everywhere as he is an eyewitness to most, if not all of the things that are recorded here. But he never refers to himself. And we saw when we when I gave you the introduction to the Gospel of John on August 2nd, 2009, that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then as we trace the, the reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved throughout John, we see that there are places and times and people to whom he is related, that when we narrow it all down, we are left with only one conclusion, that that is John, the son of Zebedee, who is the author of this gospel. And he is the one that is mentioned in the previous verses, even verse 23, where John writes, Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple, that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to you these things. It is this disciple whom people were confused about who was with Peter, and that is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is John's sort of signature to his gospel, and and characteristic of John, in humility, he kind of still keeps himself unnamed, though he does reveal to you that the author of the gospel is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's, of course, as John, the son of Zebedee. And so this is his testimony. Everything that is written here is written by a man who was an eyewitness to these events. And the person who wrote verse 24, John, is not just talking about the couple of things here at the end of the gospel, but this entire book. These are the things that the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the son of Zebedee, wrote down. And John says, we know that these things are true. And it's kind of odd that John would use the first person plural, we, when he could have just said, I know that these things are true. But instead he says, we know that these things are true. And quite frankly, that has caused some liberal commentators and liberal scholars who love to doubt the authenticity of the authorship of all the various New Testament books, that has caused some of them to say, well, this obviously could not have been written by John, any one individual, but maybe by a collection of individuals who kind of were taking on the persona of John, because he uses the term we. But we ought not to make too much of that, since this is something that is characteristic of John's other writings. In First John chapter 1, the entire first chapter is, we, we know these things are true, we have seen these things, we handled the word of life, and we know that this is true, and we testify these things to you. So even though John himself is writing First John, he speaks as if he is writing for a group of people, and that may indeed be what he is doing here. It might be that John is writing and speaking these things on behalf of an apostolic community. Maybe the other apostles, other eyewitnesses, other men who may have even the very first uh their very first copy of John have, have signed their own signature or their name in attesting that these things were indeed true. And so John is aware that he is writing not just on behalf of one individual, but really he is writing the observations and the wisdom and the truth as seen and understood from a collection of individuals. And you could even refer to that as the apostolic man. So it is John who is the author of this, even though he says we know that his and he's speaking to, again, of himself in the third person, as he does throughout the book. We know that his testimony is true. Now, when John says true, he doesn't mean true in the way that many people today use the term true. When people speak of truth or what is true today, what they really are referring to oftentimes is what is true to you. So something might not even be true, but as long as you believe it, then it's true to you. It's it's your truth, and I have my truth, and you have your truth, and this is postmodernism. 
When John says that these things are true, he doesn't mean they are true because we believe them to be true or they're true because we want them to be true or or they're true because we we think that they are true because this is the truth that we have embraced. And so this is our truth, but there are other things that are not that would contradict this that are also true to other people. That's not how John is using the word true. When John speaks of truth and when the Bible speaks of truth, it means an accurate description of reality as it really is. When you speak of something that is true, we mean it is true. It is true whether you like it, whether you embrace it, whether you believe it, even if you reject it or mock it, even if nobody else believes it, even if you never run into anybody who believes it. If it's true, it's true, even if everybody rejects it. To give you an illustration, if I were to walk up to one of you and say, what color is the shirt that I'm wearing? And somebody were to say purple or red, right? Uh, that's a red shirt. They say, well, is that really what you believe to be true? Well, that's my truth, that it's a red shirt. For you, it might be a different color. It is whatever you want to self-identify your shirt to be in this day, right? And then we use that language because it shows just how absurd our perception of reality is. And, and if you said that, that I believe your shirt is purple and that's my truth as I see it and that's how I embrace it so that's true to me, then I would have to respectfully and gently say to you, no, moron, this shirt is not red, this shirt is brown. My shirt is brown, my tie is brown, my pants are brown. I look like a tree trunk for crying out loud. There's nothing on me that is red. It doesn't matter what you perceive to be the color that I am wearing. What is it in reality? The truth is that it is brown. So it doesn't matter how you self-identify this color. It doesn't matter how you think this, what this, what you feel about this cover, color. All of that is irrelevant. All that matters is what is objectively true. Alright? If you were to walk to the top of a 10-story building and jump off, it doesn't matter how you feel about gravity, how you self-identify about gravity, it doesn't matter what you think about gravity, the reality is, the truth is, the gravity which has seized upon you is going to draw you to the earth um, in a very quick pace toward your death on the pavement that waits below. doesn't matter what you perceive about it. What matters is what is true regarding reality and its hold upon you. And so it is with the things which are recorded in the Scripture. If every living soul on the face of this planet rejected this as truth, it would not change the nature of this at all. This would still be true. No matter how anybody feels about it, or thinks about it, or what anybody says about it, you can mock it and reject it and hate it and not believe it, but it is still true. And just like gravity, the realities that are herein disclosed have seized upon you, and they will drag you till your day of death, and they will judge you on the last day, even if you reject it. So when John says his testimony is true, he is saying regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, what is revealed about him is true. It is actual real, actually real. You may not understand how it is that the eternal God who existed with the Father and was God by very nature, you may not understand how that it is that that person, that second person of the Trinity, could be manifested in the flesh and walk among us. But it is true whether you understand it or not. You may not understand how it is that the Holy Spirit, who is also God, though a separate person, could conceive in the virgin of a, uh, in the womb of a virgin a baby child who is God in human flesh. You may not understand that miracle, that mystery, but it is true nonetheless. You may not understand how it is that Jesus performed the miracles that he performed, how he made the lame to walk and the blind to see and raise the dead to life. You may not understand how that is. You may not understand how it is that on the last day that he will utter the words and every living soul which has ever lived will be resurrected and stand before him. You may not understand how that is, but it is objectively true and it will happen, even if we reject it. You may not understand how it is that the Holy Spirit can also be God and dwell within his people, or how it is that God can regenerate people's hearts and give them repentance and through faith, Give them eternal life 
forgiveness of sins, and a clean conscience. You may not understand how that can be. All based upon faith, but it is true nonetheless. And so this is John's testimony. What he has written to us is true. And this, this bears upon another issue, which is the reliability of the Gospels in general. Uh, speaking now of all four of the Gospels. What is recorded to us by these men is eyewitness testimony of people who were there and saw these things happen. And these Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written contemporaneous with the people who actually lived and saw these things. And they are the testimony of men and women who were eyewitnesses to these things and could have rejected the testimony of those Gospels if indeed any one of the Gospel writers was, was lying or fabricating or making anything up at all. It could have been rejected by the people to whom those, those letters were originally written because they were written, written and circulated in the lifetime of the very people who saw these things happen. And the men who wrote these things not only were eyewitnesses of these events, but all four of their accounts all agreed together in perfect harmony, each of them presenting something different about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are harmonious and in agreement together. And these men wrote these things, and then listen, they sealed their testimony with their own blood. These men suffered, and they were hunted, they were hated, they were persecuted, and many of them, all of the, all of the disciples except for John, were executed for their faith. And they sealed their testimony with their own blood. And so people now can say, 2,000 years later, well, I don't, re- I don't believe that, I reject that, I don't believe their eyewitness accounts. And so here, those skeptics are, 2,000 years removed from those events, doubting the eyewitness testimony that has been recorded and, and written down and handed down to us and preserved for us. You can doubt that eyewitness testimony, but it doesn't make it not true. And so who are we to believe? The modern-day skeptics, 2,000 years removed from the events, or the ones who wrote it down and then sealed that testimony with their own blood? And I've heard it said, because I've debated these people on Facebook, I've heard it said that these the, the apostles did this and they wrote these things down because they had ulterior motives. They just wanted to be, they wanted wealth, they wanted power. Really, did Peter, John, Paul, did any of those men receive wealth or power for that? No, they were persecuted and hunted and hated. If you honestly believe that John wrote these things down and then sealed this testimony with his own blood because he wanted power and popularity, you are truly a moron. That is the most foolish thing anybody could possibly believe. There is no way that John, having written this gospel, could have expected anything but hatred and persecution for what he put down. It's true. It's vouchsafed to us. It's true. We can believe it. It's trustworthy. Second, it is selective. It's a selective testimony. Look at verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John is not a comprehensive account of the entire life of Jesus. And that's what John is saying here. There are many other things, many other signs that Jesus did, which he could have included, but he didn't include. There's a similar statement, remember, back at the end of chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, where John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, that is, in the, the book of John. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There are other signs, other miracles that John could have recorded that he didn't record. And some of these miracles are mentioned by some of the other gospel writers. John has recorded seven of the miracles of Jesus, but there were a multitude of miracles, many of which, most of which, the vast majority of which actually, have not been recorded in any kind of detail for us. Matthew is probably the the gospel writer who mentions this more than anybody else. But listen to some of these verses from Matthew, where Matthew just speaks of these, these massive healings that Jesus did, but Matthew gives us no details of it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, 
paralytics, and he healed them. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any details and single anyone out and give us their background or their particular disease or give us any of the details about how Jesus did that. He just refers to this multitude of people being brought out, all kinds of diseases, all kinds of illness, that they brought them to Jesus and he healed all of them. Didn't send any of them home with having that same disease. Didn't send any of them home unhealed. He healed all of them without exception. Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 4, 14, or 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Remember, notice, no details. Just he healed their sick people. Doesn't specify or single out any of them. It's almost as if Matthew's trying to communicate to us. There were so many healings that I can't even, can't even count them, let alone give you the details about them. Matthew 14, 36, and they implored him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Matthew 15, 30, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Matthew 19, 2, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. No details. You know what Matthew, you know what the type of picture that Matthew paints for us of the healing ministry of Jesus? Every town, every center, every synagogue that he went to, every village along the way as he traveled throughout the entire land of Israel, every last one of them, the people heard that he was coming and they brought out everybody in the town to him and he healed them. It is not an exaggeration or a stretch of the imagination to say that he would have performed in his three years of public ministry thousands of miracles. Thousands. Maybe he spoke a word and a crowd of 50 paralytics was healed. Just at the spoken word. Now we don't know that. But we can be certain of this, that the crowds brought out all who were sick, demoniacs, epileptics, the lame, the mute, the blind, the deaf, the dumb, all of them. Brought them all out to them and healed all of them of their disease without leaving any single one of them. And John MacArthur has rightly, I think, said that, that it can be said of Jesus that he virtually banished disease and sickness from the land of Israel in his three years of ministry. Thousands of miracles. John records seven. Twenty-one chapters to tell us about seven miracles, and to explain the significance of those seven miracles. Now imagine, if you will, that John decided to give us a detailed account of every last miracle that he did. Mind-boggling, isn't it? And that's John's point. I've given you seven. I could have done hundreds. He could have done 700 or probably 7,000 of them as he saw them. But he just gives us seven rich miracles and all the details surrounding them and look at the book that he wrote out of just those seven miracles. And Jesus did thousands of such miracles. And then there are other sayings and teachings and his preachings and his discourses and his travels and his conversations with people and all of the other things that he did. And if you were to write those down, John says in a hyperbolic fashion, fill the world with books. It would be too many to receive or it would boggle the mind. Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, what volumes would be filled with Christ's prayers had we the record of all those he made when he continued all night in prayer to God without any vain repetition. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time praying for 20 minutes without vain repetition. And Jesus was able to pray all night long without a single wasted word and without vain repetition. What if just those prayers were recorded for us? You get a glimpse of just a short prayer in John chapter 17. But what if every prayer, every word that he prayed to the Father was recorded down for us? Volumes that would be written, right? You think my preaching in the Gospel of John is long, even just with seven miracles. Imagine if he had recorded all of that for us. It's very selective, and this was intentional with the Gospels. John recorded seven miracles and seven discourses and seven sayings. He recorded the seven miracles of Jesus, and these seven miracles are recorded by John of Jesus. Each one of them tells us something different about Jesus. 
He turned water into wine, demonstrating that he is the fulfillment of the old covenant and has brought in the new covenant. He has uh, he healed the nobleman or the the the, yeah, the nobleman's son from a distance, demonstrating he is a god over distance, and he can simply uh, heal somebody at the power of his word. He healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five, demonstrating that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, because that was the controversy that sparked was sparked by that healing. He fed the bread and uh, fish to the multitude of people, demonstrating that he is the bread of life. Then he walked on water to calm and comfort his disciples, demonstrating who he was, that he is Lord over nature and creation to them. Then he healed the man who was born blind in the temple in John chapter 9, demonstrating that he is the light of the world. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, demonstrating that he is the resurrection and the life. Each one of those seven miracles that John records has a specific theology attached to it and a specific point that you and I are to learn from that. And the same can be said of the seven discourses, which all likewise revolve around those seven miracles and are woven in with those seven miracles. So that he is the living water, John chapter 4. That he is the uh, the bread of life, John chapter 6. That he is the light of the world, John chapter 8. That he is the door, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the way, the truth, and life, and he is the vine. All of those uh, statements, those I am statements woven into those seven discourses. And the seven discourses are the, the new birth discourse in chapter 3, and the living water discourse in chapter 4, and the divine son discourse in chapter 5, and the bread of life discourse in chapter 6, and the good shepherd discourse in chapter uh, 10. I forgot one, the light of the world discourse in chapter 8, and then the farewell discourse in chapters 13 and 17. Those seven sayings and seven discourses and seven miracles of the Lord are all woven together by John, and that is just a sliver of what he could have given us. There's so much more that Jesus said and did. But John says, I have selected these things so that you may believe. This narrow slice that we get of the life and character of the Lord Jesus Christ, as overwhelming as it is, and as mind-boggling as it is, it's just a, just a slice of what John could have recorded regarding Christ. And by the way, all of the Gospel writers did this. Matthew, when he set out to write his Gospel, wanted to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of David, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and predictions. So he put pictures and portrays Jesus, everything re- regarding surrounding Jesus, as fulfillments of those prophecies regarding his kingship and his messianic qualities. And so Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment, the greater son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the soon incoming king. And so everything Matthew records, it's very selective because Matthew's not trying to deceive us. Matthew is trying to give us a, an accurate picture of one aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Mark writes his gospel, Mark focuses on the ministry and miracles of Jesus and his, uh, his doing everything immediately and suddenly and quickly. And Mark pictures Jesus as the servant of the Lord. The fulfillment of that to those passages in Isaiah chapters 40 through about 53, 55, which uh, speak of the soon and coming servant of Yahweh who would fulfill perfectly the will of the Father and do all that the Father gave him to do and be the exact opposite of what Israel had done. That's the point of those passages. So Mark portrays Jesus as the servant. Matthew is king. Mark is servant. Then you get to Luke and Luke portrays the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his humanity. So you see his emotions and his weaknesses and the things that characterize humanity. And so Luke is very selective as well. Focusing in on the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin and, and born as a baby in Bethlehem and all that accompanied that. But then when you get to John, John skips over all of the humanity of Jesus. Not that he doesn't neglect that, but he skips over the birth of Jesus and his childhood and just focuses on the fact that the eternal God became a man and walked among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Matthew, he is a king. Mark, he is a servant. Luke, he is a man. And in John, he is God. And each one of those gospel writers using selectively what they intended to record for the purpose of portraying Jesus Christ for who he is in that very unique role and element. Each one of them absolutely true. He is king. He is the servant of Yahweh. He is a man and he is God in human flesh. So John, when he speaks of Jesus as being God, since that's his emphasis, what do we get to see in the gospel of John? 
We get to see all of these passages where the relationship between the Father and the Son are explained to us and illustrated to us. We get to see passages that deal with the Trinitarian nature of God, where Jesus claims to be God. He refers to the Father who is God and then also calls the Holy Spirit God. We get to see passages where the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are explained to us, like John chapter 14 and 15. And in John's Gospel, we get to see Jesus being worshipped as God, the titles and names of God being attributed to him, him claiming for himself the titles and names, uh, divine titles and names, and the names of God, and him saying that he had the prerogative to do things that only God can do. And then he says words that would be blasphemy except off the lips of one who is God in human flesh. Like, all judgment has been given to me, and I will resurrect all men, and I will determine their eternal destiny. That's blasphemous if it doesn't come from the lips of a man who's God. And then he's worshipped as God, like Thomas in John chapter 20. My Lord and my God. And he bowed down and he worshipped him. That's the portrait that John gives us. But it's only select. John is only highlighting those things that, that, that illustrate to us that main central point, and it is this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's point. It's the whole theology of the Gospel of John, all in a, in a sort of an umbrella fashion. It's overarching, overarching uh, substance. That is it. That is, he is God, and he walked among us. And then everything John says is to prove that point. So it's very selective. Third, we notice that it is sufficient. It's sufficient. The end of verse 25. There are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, that last part of that statement, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, there are two ways to understand that. And we've seen, I think you probably remember a few times at least in John's Gospel, where I've said, look, there are two ways of, of taking this passage and understanding this, this verse. And then I would say it could be this way or it could be this way. And then I have had to, in all honesty, say it is probably the, it is probably the intention of John that we understand it both ways, because both of these are true. No matter how we take this, it could be true either way. I think John began his gospel that way, by the way. And I think that John is ending the gospel with another double entendre. There are two ways that this verse could be understood, and I, I think that John intends both of them at the same time. I'll give you the example of how John began his gospel with something of a double entendre. In the beginning, he said that Jesus is the light. Um, in him was life, and the light, no, yeah, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, but the darkness did not, remember what the next word is? Comprehend it. Right? That word can mean comprehend as in understand or grasp it. It can also mean to overcome it. So is it true that the light did not comprehend, the darkness did not comprehend the light of Christ? They didn't, did they? No, because men love darkness. And so they rejected that. They didn't understand it. They didn't, they didn't embrace it. So they didn't comprehend it in that sense. But did the darkness overcome him? The darkness didn't overcome him either. So there's a double entendre there that John uses at the beginning of the gospel. And I think he's doing the same thing here. There are two ways that that phrase can be taken. That if everything were written in detail, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Here's the first way. As a statement of hyperbole. As a statement of hyperbole. It's a, it's a hyperbolic statement. He is overstating something or exaggerating something. It, it is true. It is a hyperbole to say that if everything Jesus said were to be written down, that the world would not be able to contain the books the world would be able to contain the books of everything that he said. Because the world is a big place, and we can write things very finely. So it is a, a hyperbole, and it, makes, it doesn't make sense to take it in a hyperliteral fashion. So what John's point in the hyperbole is, is this. Qualitatively and quantitatively, the words, the, de the deeds, um, the works of Jesus, his person and his character and what he did, is so vast of a work that the human mind cannot comprehend it. 
And if we were to try and exegete it, quite frankly, it would be beyond our mind. It is so great, it is so large, that even the world could not contain the books that would be written. So that's a hyperbolic statement. There's a second way of understanding it, and that is this. The word that is translated contained in the passage is the word that can be translated accept or receive, and it has the idea of giving a friendly and open welcome to somebody. So I might say, if you were to come to my house this afternoon, I would receive you in, I would accept you in, I would use, in the Greek language, this term, to contain you in my house, to welcome you or contain you in my house. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 19, verse 11, when he says, not all men can accept this statement, receive or contain this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. What does Jesus mean by that? He can make this statement, but men will reject it. They won't accept it or embrace it or receive it. Now, if that's what John means here, then what is he saying? Put that verb, put that word, translated that way into the passage. Verse 25 says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they're written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not accept or receive the books that would be written. In other words, the meaning would be this. If John had recorded one more miracle, would the world, unbelieving world be convinced? If he had recorded eight instead of seven, have you ever met somebody who said, you know, I was reading through the Gospel of John, I don't believe this nonsense about Jesus because there's only seven signs recorded in John. If there were eight, I might have given it some thought and maybe believed. If there were nine, I probably would have believed it. But since there's only seven, you ever met anybody who's done that? If John had recorded twice the book, if he had done two volumes and recorded 14 miracles and 14 discourses and 14 I am statements, if John had done that, would the unbelieving world embrace that and accept that and receive it? No, they wouldn't at all, wouldn't they? If John had recorded every single event that Jesus ever participated in, every single of the thousands of miracles that he did, if he had done that, would the world be convinced? Would the world repent and believe? No, because we have seen throughout this gospel that the, the unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is due to what? A love for darkness. That's John's theme, and he is ending with that. Even if I were to record all of it, the world itself would never receive it or embrace it. But what is recorded is sufficient for you and I. Because the unbelieving world rejects this truth, and if John had recorded more truth, they would just have more truth to suppress, and it wouldn't convince them. The miracles that John records do not create faith. Miracles do not create faith. Miracles strengthen faith. Faith is a gift from God. That believing faith is a gift from God. And miracles do not create that. Miracles strengthen that. So as believers, we look at a miracle that is recorded and that buttresses our faith. It strengthens it. It encourages us in that truth. And we understand it. We appreciate it. We receive it. But the world reads that and they don't accept it or receive it. And no amount of miracles can convince an unbeliever to believe. No amount. Because the very people who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus plotted the death of Jesus. Because they said, if we continue on like this, all men will believe in him. We cannot have this. We must kill him. These are the people who saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. And then they met to hatch this plan to kill Jesus because they wanted to suppress the truth and the righteousness. So if John had recorded everything that Jesus ever said or did, would the world embrace it, repent, and believe? They would continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because the problem is not a lack of evidence. It's that they love their sin and they love their darkness and they wouldn't embrace it or accept it if we had eight Gospels or ten Gospels or a hundred Gospels. If all 12 of the disciples had written the gospel, or had written 10 gospels each, it wouldn't matter. The world would still reject it. And that's what John is saying. Unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence. It's due to a love for darkness. And we have seen that, and that is how John is ending his gospel. 
Now that brings us to the end. I promised you would get there. And ha, for those of you who thought the Lord would come before we did get through with this book, we are through with it. Um, this is the end of John's Gospel, and so we come to the end of what I can say about it, not the end of its value, or nor is this the end of what could be said about the, the Gospel of John. And I can't think of any better way to close the final message from the Gospel of John than with the words that close J.C. Ryle's commentary on John's Gospel. You've heard me quote him several times throughout our study, and so I end with his words because I think they are, I think they are as rich and good as we can expect or hope. He writes this. Reader, I have now set before thee thy Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that very Son of God who was begotten by the Father by an eternal and ineffable generation, consubstantial and co-equal with the Father in all things. But in these last times, according to prophetical oracles, he was incarnate for us, suffered, died, rose again from the dead, and was made King and Lord of all things. This is he who is appointed and given to us by God the Father as the fullness of all grace and truth, as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, as the ladder and door of heaven, as the serpent lifted up to render the poison of sin harmless, as the water which refreshes the thirsty, as the bread of life, as the light of the world, as the Redeemer of God's children, as the shepherd and door of the sheep, as the resurrection and the life, as the corn of wheat which springs up into much fruit, as the conqueror of the prince of this world, as the way, the truth, and the life, as the true vine, and finally as the redemption, salvation, satisfaction, and righteousness of all the faithful in all the world throughout all ages. Let us therefore pray God the Father, that being taught by his gospel, we may know him that is true and believe in him who alone is salvation, and that believing we may feel God living in us in this world and in the world to come may enjoy his eternal and most blessed fellowship. Amen and amen. Let's bow. Our Father, we are so grateful for the time that we have had studying this rich gospel and for all that is revealed to us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in these pages. I pray that our time and our study and all that we have learned may indeed be cemented in our hearts, in the hearts of all those who are yours and who are faithful to the truth. May you encourage us in these things. Thank you for the glimpse at the nature of our triune God, the deity of the Son, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and the grandeur and majesty of you, our great God and Father. And we pray that these truths may be forever with us, and that you would continue to sanctify your people by your truth each and every day. We love you and thank you for a perfect Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.